So, mm, tonight I want to talk a bit about, well, this sounds grandiose, how do we manifest embodied awakening? Or more specifically, something that I've heard in a couple of questions, which is how, um, what's the relationship in a way, what's, how does the, the meditation practice that we're doing, the very inward, quiet, subtle practice, how does that relate to actions in the world? Does it at all relate? You know, or is it some kind of esoteric, isolated, disconnected activity? Obviously the answer is no, but <laughs> I just want to talk a bit about that. The Buddha was very clear that the way our awakened mind and heart manifests is in our actions. This is a quotation. A wise person is characterized by her actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment shines. So he's really, also says a fool is characterized by her actions (laughs) as well. In other words, you know, the how we act in the world is reflective of the understanding, the wisdom that's been cultivated, that's grown in our heart, in our mind. So, I guess it's obvious, but just to say that what we're doing here is not somehow isolated in any way. And if there's... Not that they, you know, it's an immediate cause and effect. As soon as you see something, you're perfect in the world. But if... You know, in the big picture, if there's someone you know or you you hear of teachers or so, whatever, claiming all this wisdom and and you see that they're really acting in unskillful, inappropriate, harmful ways, that's something to really look at, something to really pay attention to. So I want to talk about this tonight, the sense of our wisdom manifests in our actions. It's not so straightforward, though is it? The sense of the wisdom that manifests isn't just the ideas that non-harming is a good thing. I mean, we could probably sign up for that. That greed causes suffering. Maybe you're ready to sign up for that. But the, the wisdom isn't just the idea that it would be a good idea not to do certain things and to do other things. I think we know that, right? I'm not going to get angry anymore. Good luck. But we can sincerely mean that. We can sincerely mean it. But it's not enough uh, wisdom, moment-to-moment wisdom, to truly transform how we respond, how we act in the world. Because when we don't deeply, truly understand how our minds are working, the habits of our mind. I mean, we've been going on about this the whole time, really emphasizing, at least I know I say it a lot, that the steadiness of awareness is to allow us to see all the habits that occur in our mind, the habits of the kalatia of greed, hatred, confusion, how they manifest, how they arise, how they act how they bring us suffering. Not as some kind of esoteric exercise just for the hell of it, but because when we don't really know, we don't really watch and we don't understand how these habits work, and also beautiful habits. They transform 
in the light of awareness. When we don't understand, then even with the so-called best intentions, you know, we find ourselves doing something completely opposite. I uh, heard this on the radio sometime last year. It, uh, it really kind of haunted me on, on public radio. It was so interview with two. I came in in the middle of it, so I can't tell you who the guys were or the whole thing that they were talking about. I can only give you this little snippet that haunted me. But they, they were two men that were talking about some project they have. They were working with people in prison for violent crimes and some project of working with um, interrupting violence. That was the name of it. I missed everything else, except for this little quotation they mentioned from some young man, young guy, who was in prison for a violence, for an act of violence. And he said, quote from him was, I wish I could take back that three to five seconds of his life when he reacted in a situation with violence that has completely changed and informed the whole rest of his life. Three to five seconds. When we just don't know, we just don't see what our mind and heart, how it's reacting in that moment. It's amazing. But we can see that, huh? In ourselves. It may not be a violent crime. It may be that I've had enough cake and you find yourself up there, you know, with your hand in the cake again. How did that happen? How could that have happened? You know, so that's little. That's not like a horrible thing, but it's that same sense of not really being aware of what the mind is doing in that moment. You know, that, so that's what I want to talk about, the sense of bringing awareness to the intentions in the heart, in the mind. The Buddha said very clearly, he was very clear over and over that the seed of action, the seed of karma is intention. That motivation in the heart and mind that leads to speech and action. You know, we, we had that in the instructions a couple of weeks ago. So in this level of intention, it's that, that chetana, the word in Pali, that uh, about to movement, not the, the macro, which I'll talk about as well, but the micro, the moment-to-moment impulse in the mind and heart that leads to speech and action. And, you know, in our practice here, we say over and over that mindfulness, unbiased awareness, doesn't care what's arising. That our job of awareness is simply to see. If whatever's coming up in the mind, whatever mood or emotion or train of thought, we simply need to be present for it. With pure awareness, watch it. Don't try to suppress it. If greed comes, watch it. If fear comes, be with it. If ill will is arising, be present with it. Ill will is like this. We're not saying act it out, but we're not saying suppress it. It's like it's all equal opportunity for awareness, right? You've heard us say that. Right? Just check it. Just check it. Okay. So then the question comes, so then when does it matter? Does it ever matter? You know, does it ever make a difference? And this is where, when we're not completely aware, it does matter. When whatever qualities are in the, the psyche, the chitta, the consciousness in a particular moment, whether it's greed or ill will or compassion or equanimity or um, metta, that 
they cohere in that moment to form an intention, that about-to movement that leads to speech and action, it matters. And that's when the Buddha was so clear that the seed of action isn't the result, which is how we tend to evaluate it, but it's in the quality in the intention itself, in that internal moment, which makes it wholesome or unwholesome, karmically. So learning how the steadiness of the mindfulness practice really cultivating uh, an interest, a commitment, not just as a, as a, you know, an interesting practice, but to really see that how we understand how our mind works, how wisdom comes in and understands what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom in our own mind and heart is going to impact, it's going to affect the way we respond and the way we act in the world. This is why it takes such a a commitment, a willingness on our part to keep showing up for the whole show. You know it's not in our control. We know that. We space out, we come back. But the willingness to keep looking. And I find for myself that over the years, the commitment uh, keeps changing, keeps deepening, keeps kind of changing form. But recently what re-inspired my commitment I've mentioned this before, but it, it's, it had quite an effect. A few years ago, when I was in, in Germany, um, I went to visit, I mean, I'm in Germany every year, but suddenly this year I decided I really wanted to visit Dachau, you know, which is set up like a museum, which is one of the uh, concentration camps. So I went there, and I was really happy. I went by myself, because I just had time to just walk through and reflect, and it's it's set up, I thought, very skillfully as a museum. Um, okay, it's been a few years, so I don't tell it, but the way it was set up was that they had some of the buildings that had been there and then others, um, no longer the buildings, but just the foundation. So one sense I got was how huge it was. And then friends later, German friends said, but that was one of the small ones, you know. And it was set up with kind of... Um, Oh, big kind of plaques, posters, describing all kinds of different aspects of, of the whole situation of the internment camps, the concentration camps, and the people that worked there and things that went on and the different people that were interned there. You know, so they might have a, a big poster of all the different nationalities of people who were in the concentration camp or peoples who had different sexual orientations or people who were Roma or, you know, not, not only Jewish people, but people, all kinds of people, people that worked there, things that doctors did, people who brought in the bread, people in the community who did this and that. And for many of the, you know, they described just different, all the different aspects. So it's huge, right? So many people involved. And then often there would be like a, like a, a specific person, they'd kind of tell that person's story. So it also made it for me quite immediate. You know, it takes it out of the vastness to the personal and we can relate a little bit better when it's like this one person was the baker who did this or this one person was, went through this particular difficult experience, whatever. So, but it was actually, in a weird way, what it really did was deepen uh, really deepen my faith in the Dharma, 
in our practice, in the uh, depth of uh, the power of awareness and steady wisdom to really transform our hearts and minds. And it re-deepened my commitment to keep looking because the vastness of it really took me to the place of, wow, this is just people, you know? You can't just say this is a, a few really evil people. It's like normal people like me. And then, you know, look around the world. I mean, how many horrific, horrific scenarios just happening now. I don't have to take you through them all. I'm not here to do that right now, but one could. Horrific scenarios. This now, in the past 20 years, in all of history, involving thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. They can't all be evil people different from me, you know? And so to me, it's like, okay, I don't know. I do not know how I would react or respond if I were in a particular situation of genocide or in a concentration camp or, or someone of my family was being threatened if I didn't do such and such a thing that I thought was wrong. I do not know. And so the sense that it took me to is a deepening my willingness, my commitment, and I keep revisiting it to really look and see what are the habits of my mind? How will I act in a situation that I haven't been in before that's scary or difficult or pressured? And just thinking, well, I'm a good person, I wouldn't do that. No, forget it. Like this young guy in jail, three to five seconds when if the conditions are there, if there's still um, tendencies to greed or ill will or fear or aversion, yes, there's still tendencies to all of that. (laughs) And so far, everyone I know. And if we don't want to see it or if we take it to, it's not personal. This is just the habits that have been cultivated through how we've grown up and what we've learned, what we've been talking about the whole time. If we're afraid to see it, or we're not in the habit of looking, we we don't really have that that faith in the steadiness of awareness and that wisdom really does transform the habits, then we're either going to drown and we're not going to look or we're going to, you know, delude ourselves. We just really don't know. We just really don't know. And so this is where we... We bring our practice in. This is a laboratory here on the retreat. But your mind here, do you think it's a different mind from the one you have in your daily life? (laughs) No. Maybe you're having some nicer states than you get in your daily life. Maybe you're having some really whacked out states that you think, I don't have those in my daily life. Yeah, right, right. You think, but this is a stupid, it's about an orange. It's not about, you know, something really important. But the state is similar. This is what we're here to discover. So, this commitment to really look, to really look in our mind and heart and see. It's why all the aspects of the path that the Buddha taught, as far as I can understand, of of, um, 
metta, the Brahma Viharas, generosity that Greg talked about, Sheila non-harming behavior, meditation. It's not like a, you do one so you can do the next. All of them, all of them are different angles to come in to purify the habits of our heart and mind. When we talk about the pure mind, you know, here, moments when it's not acting out of greed, hatred, confusion, it's not just because it feels good. It's not just, oh, great, something to get to. It's because the more and more that these habits change, the more we can learn to really uh, recognize and rest in the pure heart and mind instead of taking refuge in ill will or fear. Or greed. I mean, we don't consciously say that's what we're taking refuge in, but where do we go in times of stress? You know, that's what starts to change when the heart and mind begins to be purified. That's what we're doing here. All those moments where nothing is happening, it's just calm. <laughs> These are really important moments. Those moments when it's calm and you watch your mind, as you said last time, volunteering for suffering, right? It's calm. I'd rather, you know, let's just make up something to get upset about rather than at least then I can explore it. This is just, you know, okay. That's the habit of mind, of me and aversion popping up. But so all these moments of moment-to-moment mindfulness of the mundane. Okay, it's not calm, but you're just feeling your foot. You're watching yourself want a third piece of cake. You eat it or you don't eat it, but you pay attention to why you're doing it. Why is sitting, the breath, hearing, so what? You know, it's like, it's not so what. Every moment, that's a moment of pure awareness that isn't filled with greed, hatred, confusion, is really important. This is beginning of the purification of this, which just means switching habits the habits begin to change. And this is what's going to change our whole life and the way we relate and the way we are with other people. So that, you know, we don't have our own three to five seconds of unaware, really violent, really harmful, really selfish behavior. Or not too often. So I want to talk a bit about, just a bit about mindfulness of intention and then both in the macro and the micro, because sometimes we get confused in that way. Let's talk about, in some of the commentaries, um, we talk about clear comprehension, sati sampajanya, sati mindfulness. Sampajanya is the word that's often translated as clear comprehension. And, and one way to talk about is, is recognizing that our mindfulness practice isn't just a narrow focus, but includes a you know, broader range of appropriateness and really, what's our purpose? Why are we doing what we're doing? So in the broad, kind of macro intention, and in English, we use motivation and intention kind of interchangeably, and we can use it for this macro and micro. I'll explain what I mean, and that's confusing. So I want to kind of clarify. It's come up a bit here. When we talk about aspiration, in terms of in the beginning of the retreat, I know when you had your little um, groups talk about what, what's your aspiration for practice. I know I mentioned the other day a practice I, I shared that I often do from the Tibetan of, of clarifying your aspiration in the beginning of a practice period, you know. 
And that's okay, more, ma- more macro, a sense of what's really important here, you know. Not just in this moment. Aspiration doesn't mean, in terms of wholesome aspiration, in terms of what's onward leading, what really brings us energy, brightness, faith, confidence to do. What got you here? What keeps you here, other than social pressure? What, uh, that's micro-intention. <laughs> I'm here out of fear. But the aspiration, you know, in some moments that's true. We just notice that. That's okay. Social pressure can be useful at times. But the bigger aspiration, whatever that is for you, and that might change from time to time, is really this sense of what's truly important in my life. What is important to me to really take time to tune into that and see. I think this funny is from um, Surya Das was writing, Lama Surya Das was writing this, describing incident with uh, one of his teachers who has since died, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who is really uh, one of the most um, profound Dzogchen masters around. So he was in France, and he had gone to the ocean in France. So Surya is writing this, and it must have been the first time that Kenko, Kenpo had seen the beach. You know, it comes from Tibet, right? And observed exactly what Westerners do there. So when he came back to the monastery, he was giving a Dhamma talk, and then suddenly he veered off and started talking about the beach. And he said, it was so big. But then he was excitedly described what he had seen. There were these people there. And instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people, they were just lying there, <laughs> almost naked and doing nothing. And then when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. <laughs> and then they lay there again for another few hours. <laughs> Kempo was truly, genuinely perplexed. Yes, why were they doing that? You know, he couldn't understand it, but he had so much compassion for them. <laughs> he said, and this is like a sense of, how could they waste their precious human existence? This life is so short, so precious, so valuable, not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably, usefully for the benefit and welfare of all. So you get a sense of what was important to him, you know. It's kind of like, don't take that as a judgment, but it's like, to me, it's inspiring. Not just lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. (laughs) He got really impassioned. He said, I just wanted to go wake them up. And he saw, he said, he saw this big white, uh, white chair away, obviously the lifeguard's chair. And he said, but there were two people sitting there, so I couldn't go up. But I wanted to really badly to climb up there and announce to everybody it was time to wake up. <laughs> so <laughs> just taking that, I mean, it's funny, but just taking it as a, a reminder, you know? And again, this isn't from judgment. This is from really touching in deeply in your heart and mind, and honestly, not what should or you think you ought to, because that's just from disconnect, but from what's really important to you. And then, as we said, you know, whether it's every day or once in a while, really take the time to tune in and see what's really important. And then use it as 
a guideline. This is called clear comprehension of purpose or aspiration. This is the macro, the macro. But as we've said, it's, I think, really important. I'll say how in a minute, but it's not enough. Because how, what really leads to behavior is the moment-to-moment micro-intentions, right? That I've been mentioning. So as the Buddha said, as I said before, he said that in karma, intention, I tell you, is karma. The movement, what the quality in the mind or heart that leads to speech and action. And it, I know you've all heard this, and may not, it's not how we normally tend to think. No, like we tend to think like compassion is a good example. We think we do something to help. That's a compassionate action. It may be. It may be. But it really depends on what's the motivation in the mind. We tend to judge by the result or how it looks, you know. But that's out of our control. Or we give by that, by, or what's the situation around it. We often don't know the situation. The only thing that, it's not in our control, but if there's mindfulness, we do have a moment of choice is to learn how to get in touch and notice why we're doing what we're doing. And the same action could be from so many different intentions, right? So I always use the same example because it's just a really easy one. If you have the idea that there's someone you care about that has a particular kind of behavior that's bringing them suffering and you really want to share, you really want to help them with that. So that could arise in the mind really from a place of caring and compassion, right? But they're not around then. You're not saying it then. And our tendency is to just have that, oh, that's a good idea. Then we don't pay attention, and then whenever the time comes, we just say it. But we're not noticing. Just because the idea was a com- coming from compassion three days ago, we just assume it's steady state until we do it and stop paying attention, and that's not the case at all. So when the time comes to say this compassionate thing, the same phrase could be said from frustration, impatience, hostility, just complete ignorance. The poor person comes schlepping in at the end of the day, totally exhausting. The kids are screaming. They're trying to make dinner. And you say, I really have something important to tell you. You know, you've been doing this bad thing for 15 years and people hate you for it. It would be good to change. Out of all the love in my heart, I'm sharing this. You know, completely (laughs) oblivious to what's going on. The same words, right? Or one day you could say it and and really take the time to stop and connect, and it really does come from compassion. It's the kind of thing we see in the compassion practice. You're saying those phrases and all the different feelings that come with it. That's what we're practicing to see, to really see why we're doing what we're doing. And it's these little moment-to-moment-to-moment movements that where if we're not aware the habits of mind will tend to surface. As the Buddha said over and over, what we um, frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of our mind. Which, you know, it's a little scary uh, sometimes to think that, but it's really important to see. So it can bring in this willingness to really look. Now the beauty of the willingness to keep noticing what we've been saying all along is that the natural effect of clear seeing, of wisdom, when the mindfulness has momentum, and say, going back to saying that you really want to say this compassionate thing, but you keep paying attention, you see how 
The idea was compassionate, but now you're just, you know, ticked off at the person. And you can see that, so you don't say it. You don't say it. The wisdom allows us to see the ill will, not flinch away from it, not take it personally, and it gives this moment of choice. From the, from the space of wisdom, the habits of, of greed, holding on, of ill will, hostility, cruelty, those habits naturally transform in the light of wisdom. That's what's so kind of far out about uh, what really lends, uh, in my mind, the sense of trust and confidence, the willingness to look, the willingness to see. Because when we, and, and you've, I know you've all been seeing that here at times, and then it rebounds and we get lost again. But there's times when you're really just watching craving, watching craving, even watching the mind act on it, but you still watch it without a lot of judgment. And at some point, the wisdom, the panya just comes in, you know what, I really don't need that. You know, you've had that moment where the mind just puts it down and go, I let go, but you didn't let go. Wisdom saw and craving stopped arising because it didn't make sense. It's so much easier than thinking you have to figure it out and let go. All we have to do is be willing to trust the awareness enough to keep being steady, to keep looking. This stuff naturally transforms. It's really, it's amazing, really. Guy, Guy likes to say, maybe he said it in some of his, <laughs> that got him. Um, maybe he said it in some of his talks, or I don't know, where he talks about thinking that it's really a beneficent universe. You know, when he first said it, I thought, with my verse in mind, beneficent universe, are you reading the papers? Are you paying attention to history? You know, how can you say that? But he is, it's like, it's like when there's clear seeing, the natural effect of wisdom is yata bhuta, seeing clearly things as they have come to be in this moment. In the heart, mind of purity, in that moment, a thought of harm does not arise. The thought of it's all about me, not more for me and less for you, doesn't arise. You don't have to let go of it. It is dissipated by itself. That's the trust. That's the sense of beneficent universe that's so far out. It really gives me the faith and the willingness to keep on looking at all the um, relatively unpleasant moments when the other habits are popping up. We really need to see them. So this sense of the macro now, this having a a clarity in yourself of what is really important to you. What is your sense of purpose or aspiration? And that can change, you know, as we go through life and as we go through our practice. That's great if it changes. Keep just checking in. Is the way it's described is it gives us some, it kind of collects our dispersed energy. It serves as a, a guideline, as a reminder. And if we don't have like a kind of a, an overarching what's really important in life, then even when we're paying attention, we just kind of respond. You know, we make this choice, we make that choice. We just kind of respond haphazardly, not necessarily in a harmful way, but there's no kind of direction, no kind of focus. Where if we have a sense of what's important, it can inform our choices, if they say it collects the dispersed energy. So for example, think of if you're having a family, there's probably many sacrifices and many choices you make where you don't do something you want to do, 
where you give up all kinds of activities in order to support your kids, to be there for your kids, to be with the family. And it doesn't even, well, it may sometimes, but generally it's not like a resentful thing. It's a choice out of compassion, out of metta, out of generosity, or just doing the obvious, as one teacher said. You get a sense of how, oh yeah, the family, it gives a, a collectedness. It gathers the dispersed energy. It doesn't mean every moment is filled with total compassion, loving kindness, generosity. But when there's a choice to make, the sense of what's really important is something we can reference that really can support us. And it can give, in terms of our practice, in ter- which is our whole life, not just sitting here, in terms of continuing to cultivate wisdom and awareness, the sense of tuning into your aspiration can really give us a great, um, really determination, resolution, which is one of the paramis, the sense of willingness to keep going, even in the face of difficult. One example of this was uh, this Chinese Chan master, Master Shen Yen. I don't know if any of you knew who he was. He died just a few years ago. I just had a couple of retreats with him out of Taiwan. He was really a very inspiring, wonderful being, very, quite realized, very kind, very relational, uh, a great teacher. And he had like, he's kind of like, in Taiwan, he's kind of like the Dalai Lama of Taiwan. He has this huge, huge, tens of thousands of people seen. But when he would come and teach here, he was just very simple and relational in that way. Sort of like when you're around the Dalai Lama, people around him just feel good because he's so kind. He manifests compassion and simplicity and kindness. And it's contagious, you know. Wholesomeness is contagious because it's, it's true for us too. Anyway, Shen Yen was wonderful that way. And um, anyway, he wrote his, in his autobiography, he was describing his life. And this was this quality of aspiration leading to uh, resolution and clarity in his decisions was very inspiring to me. So very, very brief. Uh, so he, you know, um, born in China, mainland China, in, uh, way before the, the revolution, before World War II, very poor farmer, farming family. So he became a monk, a Buddhist monk, when he was quite young, um, out in the country. It was very, you know, very difficult, you know, not much food, very difficult conditions all over. So he basically struggled most of his growing up and his young period of being a monk. So it was always a period of deprivation and all. But anyway, turn, turn after World War II, during the time when the Civil War started really going again, uh, very strongly, and, and he was now he was in Shanghai, I believe, in a monastery. And just when the communists, when Mao kind of seemed like they were winning in 1949, and then the nationalists went to Taiwan, he said he knew his commitment was to be a Buddhist monk, to be a monk. That was his life. That's what he was. And he said he realized that if he if he stayed in mainland China he wouldn't be able to do that. They were destroying the monasteries and he'd either be killed or forced to disrobe or whatever. So he wanted to get to Taiwan, or Formosa then, in order to continue to be a monk. Well, he had nothing. He was poor. The only way he could get there was by signing up with the Nationalist Army, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's army, and then they would take him over. So he did that. He signed up with the army. 
So he was enlisted in the army and he got over. Well, it wasn't like he could get over to Taiwan and say, okay, thanks a lot. I'm now withdrawing from the army. You know, fat chance. So he was at least, I think, 10 years in the army there. And he said, in, you know, the whole time he was, lived as a vegetarian. Often he didn't have enough food. He said only would he ever eat meat if he was actually really starving. But then he would if he had to. He said, the whole time, he said, in my heart, I was a Buddhist monk. But he was in the army, and he had to live and do what you're told in the army, right? But somehow, luckily, he got some kind of a job where he, well, they weren't really fighting too much, but he didn't have to do any kind of fighting or any kind of violence. But still, he said it was extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And then it was through a whole series of of really uh, unexpected events that I'm not going to go into. He says it was extremely difficult, almost impossible for anyone to get out of the army, ever, you know, not just like in a few years. But somehow after time he managed to meet some other uh, Chan masters on the island and just through a series of really his deep commitment, he would take whatever time off he had and go off and do very... A strenuous practice, you know, in caves and these with these masters, it's just really tough. And at some point, finally, and I don't even remember how, through meeting a couple of masters and someone knew someone in the government and someone wrote a letter and this, he finally got out of the army after 10 years. But, but the thing is, he said he never in all that time ever abandoned his deep aspiration and intention that I am a Buddhist monk and this is what I'm doing. And when he got out of the army, the first thing he did was go on a six-year retreat. A six-year retreat. And he's just this, he was just this lovely, lovely guy. So the sense of the power of aspiration, of touching into it, we don't know. And then the, it, it has to inform our moment-to-moment-to-moment actions and decisions. You couldn't just say, I'm a Buddhist monk, I'll just sit back and let it happen. You have to do all these actions and you don't ever know. We never know, do we, how any action is going to turn out. So we have to be as clear as we can in the moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. We never can be in charge of what's going to happen. So that's where, you know, for me, this, this sense of recommitment from being at Dachau, it keeps coming up the, next, the last few years and it's been... Sometimes it's a little demoralizing when I'm really looking, but other times it's really inspiring because it makes me want to look and see, okay, what habits are still showing up? You know? And it's in the little things. I noticed uh, last year, I think, I was, I was on a kind of self-retreat, just kind of relaxed, simple, quiet, very peaceful. And I remember at some point I was doing a little walking and this little, I can't remember, some little kind of aversive thing came up, just saying, no big deal at all, you know, just a little bloop, little bit of version gone. And I could see how my mind would go, that's no big deal, no problem. I mean, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't bothering me or anybody, but I thought, no, wait, come back a minute. That's, you know, the habit of aversion showing up in a really mild way. But you know what? That's not acceptable. In the big picture. I mean, in the moment, yeah, it's just what it is. But in the big picture, remember, I think I quoted, or one of us did, I don't even know if it was me or someone else. The Buddha, the Buddha saying, you know, do not settle merely for wholesome states of mind. Or not like, okay, there's a little bit of version. 
We'll agree it comes, it goes. There's a lot of awareness. It's manageable. It's good enough. You know, it's good enough, but no, it wasn't good enough. It re-inspires me to keep looking, to keep seeing, okay, what are the little habits? Let's see them instead of going, well, it's good enough, and then we stop paying attention. So what little things, you know, when you suddenly slam down the phone or get a little annoyed with that, that you know, person on the other end of the phone calling from Social Security or not answering or not even a person at the voicemail, <laughs> the three and a half hours of voicemail, you know. Still, if version comes up in the mind, noticing that, not with judgment, but with interest, with care, with willingness to see, you know, because these are the habits that are going to manifest. Notice for me sometimes when I go a little bit, when I want to, say, be compassionate, offering to, some, to a homeless person, I just feel a little bit of fear, whether I offer or not. Notice that little bit of fear. Just begin to see where the habits are arising because this, the, the seeing with wisdom, with caring, is what allows for their natural transformation. You know? Otherwise, if we don't see these seeds, they can sprout given the appropriate circumstances. And then probably many of you are aware that, I mean, I go to Burma. I've been going to Burma every year for the last, like, 13 years or something. And in the last two or three years, I'm sure you're aware, because it's in the news, that there started being uh, more, like, violence, Buddhist on Muslim violence, which is really heartbreaking uh, to read about and see. And again, you know, it's like little pockets here and there, and one can have all kinds of ideas about how it's being fomented and how, you know, seeds are being planted and directed from external and all of that. And that could all be true. I think it is true. But still, again, it's like lots of people, decent people, not people, personally, not people I know, but I know a lot of Burmese people, just people like us, you know, all of a sudden there's some kind of mob violence kind of sweeps. What's that about? You know? And, that can happen if there's not a seed to be triggered. The seed might be fear. The seed might be fear that's been fed by propaganda, that's fed by fear of losing your family, that's fed by all kinds of stuff. But if we're not aware of how fear comes up in our own mind and heart, how it gets triggered, and we're not able to hang out with it, which fear is a hard one to hang out with, but we haven't had practice hanging out with it, then that's the seed for acting out of it. Get rid of those guys because if they're gone, then I don't have to be afraid, you know? And so not about judging other people, but looking and seeing in my own heart, in my own mind, what are the seeds that still show up? And they're little. It's not a judgment. That's what the whole point I really want to make is this commitment to be interested, to see for ourselves. And then we see how naturally, and this is really what's so amazing, that the unwholesome habits, as I mentioned before, really do transform. So I want you to also notice not just the unwholesome habits, but how the wholesome ones are coming up. Not just the purity, but for instance, Greg talked about generosity the other night. So the habit, and this is what the the Buddha talks about, wise intention. The unwise intention of greed, holding on, naturally transforms in the light of steady awareness, first to renunciation, not the renunciation of, oh, 
good things, pleasant things, or bad, put it down. That's called aversion. But that's a simplicity, okay, I don't need this. And then that transforms to generosity. And that the renunciation and the generosity, the wholesome intentions, one way you can tell they're wholesome is because the state of mind and heart is expansive, even joyful. When I touch real renunciation, when the mind just puts down something, it's a sense of simplicity, of ease, of openness. It's not a sense of deprivation at all. And the, I'm sure Greg talked about generosity, and I know he told stories, so like the happiness that comes from generosity. Again, really, if you're giving something and really thinking, oh God, I've got to give this away, but I really wish I could keep it, that's not really... It's not really generosity, but the sense of, wow, yeah, maybe this really, you know, just the happiness that the open-handedness gives us, that's the, that's the purified intention, that's the wise intention. Notice it. It's not uh, feeding the ego to notice the wholesome. I know James has gone, I'm sure, gone on about this a lot, so I don't have to go into it, but it's not feeding the ego to feel the happiness of generosity, or the simplicity and the ease and the openness of renunciation. And in the same way, ill will transforms to friendliness, to metta, and cruelty or harshness transforms to the wise intention of compassion. So I just want to say a little bit, because not much time, just a little bit about those two, kind of mixing them together, how that happens. Just very briefly, I know Brian says some about it too. But just as an example, so ill will or cruelty, the unwise intentions, obviously arise when we're in contact with something painful or difficult, right? And so the difficulty with compassion, someone mentioned it this morning, some really difficult, painful situation with someone else comes up and we feel pain in connected to that or difficulty in our own hearts and minds, and we beat ourselves up about it, it shouldn't be there, that's cruelty. Or ill will, which is, transforms to metta, ill will is like, comes out from really, whereas metta comes about from the connection of really letting our attention fully connect with the being. Starting by seeing the good, but it widens out and you connect with them just as they are. Ill will comes from, you know, really focusing on, the unlovable, over and over. I think I said unwise attention to the repugnant aspect of a person or a thing breeds ill will. It's just cause and effect. So our habit of mind that feeds the ill will, the lack of metta and compassion, is this get me away from this. As I was sharing, I shared with somebody a couple of times in an interview, Larry Rosenberg, who's a, he's really funny. He's a teacher in Cambridge, I grew up in, he grew up in Brooklyn. He's like 80 now. It's hard to believe. Anyway, he used to watch a lot of old movies. And I remember him years ago saying, I have no idea if it's true, but he said it, that he, you know, he'd read somewhere that they had done, who knows, some kind of a study about what's the most frequent line in old movies. I mean, who has time to do studies like this? But anyway, <laughs> some, some study, and one of the most frequent lines was, let's get out of here. And so I shared that with someone in an interview and I was like very helpful. So it's like that's what ill will and cruelty, non-meta, non-compassion is saying. Let's get out of here. 
wisdom, mindfulness is saying, let's just be here for a moment. As Joko, this, as Joko Beck says, can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this com- confusing and painful situation? That's just mindfulness. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? That's not the same as how can I fix it? How can I make it go away? How can I feel better about it? It's just, can I find the willingness to rest? That's just the start. That's the start of mindfulness. It hasn't quite transformed yet, but actually it is transformed in that moment when there's the willingness to rest with full present in the difficult situation, ill will or cruelty are not being, they're not arising. The sense of connection, which is really how I think of metta and compassion, is arising. That's a moment of friendliness, of acceptance. That's a moment of wisdom transforming the habit of mind. If there's, you can stay with that situation in this way of just resting there with awareness, and there is something that can be done to alleviate it, that will be seen more clearly when it's not distorted by fear, by ill will, by needing to fix it so I don't feel pain or, you know, just not being able to bear your pain. Then we might jump in and try and help and maybe we'll see clearly and help and maybe not. And sometimes compassion is just the ability to be there when there's nothing we can do. One of my favorite examples of this is just briefly from a poem, beginning of a long poem by Anna Akhmatova, who was, you know, one of the most famous poets in Russia of the 20th century, really, really famous. And, and she lived in Russia through the whole, in the Soviet Union, through the whole period um, from before World War I up through World War I and the Communist Revolution and all the... Um, the terrors of the Stalinist regime where, you know, 20 million people were arrested, put into um, the Stalag's camps. And she knew many people, her first husband, her son, who were arrested and put into camps. And and she um, had originally been from a sort of aristocratic class. So anyway, this is the beginning. She made the decision not to emigrate. Many of her friends, when they saw what was coming, or after World War II, left and went to live in France or Paris, and she made the decision not to do that in order to bear witness to what was uh, happening in her country. And so this is the beginning of, it was a really long poem called Requiem, about the years from 1935 to 40, which is kind of the height of the, the Stalinist terror when just so many people were being arrested and... Um, so she's, this is, she says, this is the beginning of it. She says, not under the protection of foreign skies or saving myself on wings of alien birth. I was then there with my whole nation, there where my nation, alas, was. And then instead of a preface, so she's writing this as the beginning of the poem. In the awful days of the Yezhov terror, Yezhov terror was a peer, Yezhov was a, uh, one of the, heads of the government under Stalin, 
And there was a period of a few years where they were just indiscriminately arresting all kinds of people. So it was kind of the of terror. I passed 17 months in the outer waiting line of the prison where visitors waited, the prison in Leningrad. So that's anybody whose relatives had been arrested. They would just be disappeared in the night. They would go and wait in this line outside uh, the, the prison in Leningrad, hoping to be able to get to the authorities to offer like a care package or even find out where their relatives were. So you'd go every day, every day, every day. So she's saying she did that for 17 months because her son had been arrested and she was trying to get there to offer. So that's what she's talking about. So I passed 17 months in the outer waiting line of the prison with the visitors in Leningrad. Once, now she was already quite famous at this time, poetry very famous then. Once, somebody identified me there, called me by name. Then a woman who was standing behind me in the line, who of course had never heard me call by name, so she didn't know who she was before, awoke from her torpor, the torpor typical of all of us there, and asked me, whispering into my ear. We all spoke only in a whisper there. And can you describe this? She asked me. And I answered, yes, I can. And then the weak shadow of a smile glided over that which had once been her face. That to me is like, I just gives me chills, the power of compassion, incredible courage, incredible willingness to bear witness when you can't change it, when you can't fix it. If there is something to do, it'll be clear, hopefully, but if there's not, we still won't run away. This is the power of wisdom, not wishing it were so, but the willingness to rest in the dis-ease and the Dalai Lama. And someone asked him about what looks like a lack of compassion in human society. He said, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state. In other words, we kind of trust it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and trust to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. So it just starts by resting where we are, resting where we are and really seeing how that begins to transform our intentions and our actions. So I'll just end with this quotation from Martin Luther King in terms of this clarity, in terms of intention. He says, nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate him. And he was going on to say, he was talking about, um, you know, during the, the periods of the freedom rides, and the bombings of the churches in Birmingham, the horrible stuff that was really horrible, violent stuff. And he said then, it's amazing, you can say this, I have come to see even more that as we move on toward the goal of justice, hatred must never be our motive. I refuse to become bitter. 
that's really the force of wisdom. It's possible, you know, just in a moment, we can refuse to become bitter. If we have the, the willingness to just keep showing up and watch, and the trust that if the wisdom, we just stay steady, the wisdom will transform this by ourselves. You don't have to figure it all out. You just have the willingness to hang out with it as it's going on. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly a moment. This is from the Buddha. I do not see a single other thing so inclined to cause the arising of wholesome states not arisen, or if arisen, to cause wholesome states to further develop and increase as right view. For one with right view, wholesome states not yet arisen do arise, and if arisen, wholesome states are inclined to further develop and increase. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.